0: Father in heaven, the words we have just sung with our lips are indeed the prayer of our hearts. We ask that you would speak and speak clearly that we would just have a a greater enthusiasm and desire and excitement about your word. Come, Lord, and speak, we ask in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Please be seated. So there's been a very small and select group of men and women who have spoken words so powerful that they ring on through the centuries. A couple of weeks ago, we commemorated Martha Luther King Jr.'s speech at the Lincoln Memorial in 1963. I have a dream. Hop over to the other side of the Atlantic. We might think of Winston Churchill who had many great speeches including we will fight them on the beaches as he steeled a nation for World War II in 1940. Back over this side of the Atlantic but a little further ago George Washington's famous farewell address in 1796 where he says that a passionate attachment of one nation for another produces a variety of evils. Or the Queen Elizabeth, to jump over the Atlantic one more time, who in 1588 said, I have the heart and stomach of a king, as she rallied her troops to defeat the Spanish Armada. Now, of all these great discourses uh, throughout human history, there is one that towers above the rest. Towers like Everest, it towers over a molehill. It towers in a way to be uh, the single most significant discourse in human history, and that is found in the words we have before us in Matthew 5 through 7 in the Sermon on uh, the Mount. In our English Bibles, uh, the sermon contains 2,326 words. This means that if Jesus were our guest preacher today, and wouldn't that be great? You know, Jesus, where where are you from? Tell us how you came to faith. Um, If Jesus were our guest preacher today, it would take him only about as long as I will speak for today to, to deliver this sermon. It can be read in 10 minutes. And I encourage you all this afternoon, go home and read through the sermon. Just ten minutes of your life to read the most influential discourse in human history. And the central thrust of the sermon is, is really sem- very simple. It's, it's a great and grand and glorious elaboration of what it means to live the Christian life. This great explanation unpacking summary of what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus commanded us that we are to love one another as he has loved us. And here in this sermon, he shows us how we are to do that. So if you would describe yourself as a Christian today, then this sermon is hugely significant for you. It has huge relevance for you because it lays out and unfolds and details the kind of lives that those who claim Christ it should live. And if you wouldn't yet describe yourself as a Christian, then I'd ask you to consider that, that this sermon has its equal significance to you. Why? Because it really makes clear, really lays forth what it would mean for you to be a Christian. What life would look like were you uh, to name Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. We're going to spend 12 weeks in this text, three months, taking us through uh, to Advent. Uh, next week, we're going to start, verse by verse, working our way through the sermon. But this week, I want to give you four reasons why this is a good idea. Four reasons why I'm really excited to work through this text with you. Four reasons why I just can't wait to dig in and get going with this sermon. So, let's do that. First reason why I'm excited about working through this sermon is this. That Jesus Christ The God of grace, the God of truth. Jesus Christ, the lover of our souls. Jesus died to make the life described here possible. Jesus died to make the life described in these pages possible. At the very outset, we need to get our categories very clear. And we understand that the scriptures do not say to us, live this kind of life and you'll be a Christian. That is not the message of the scriptures that if you live in this way, you can call yourselves a Christian. No, it says if you are a Christian, if you are, have received grace from Jesus, then live in this way. The grace of salvation precedes uh, the works that are uh, laid out for us here. And it is part of the, the gift of the gospel to us, part of Christ's gift to us, that we live the life. Described, Uh, We read in Titus chapter 2, do you remember this great passage where he says, and uh, the the, the God of the gospel has appeared. Why? To give salvation to many and to purify a people for himself. Who will what? Who will be passionate about good works. Who will be zealous to do good works. In other words, those who have received the grace of the gospel are also given uh, the gift of uh, living this new life in Christ. You understand what I'm saying here that there's multiple rich, deep aspects to, to the gifts we're given in the gospel. On one hand, we are absolutely given the grace uh, for, for all our, our future needs the grace to forgive sin, the grace that means if Jesus is your Savior, you need not fear even hell itself because God has reconciled you to Himself. But the grace of the gospel doesn't end there, it's not solely future, there are also present promises. And the fullness of new life in the gospel is is one of the gifts that he gives. And I don't want us to leave this gift to the side. Um, This past weekend, last weekend, uh, Rosie and I went down to Virginia Beach to run a half marathon. And this seemed like a good idea at the time because Rosie's never run one before. And she got excited about doing one about three months ago. And I thought running with your wife, how hard is that going to be, right? Um, And then proceeded not to train while she trained really diligently, and now I can actually answer the question seriously, I can tell you how hard it is, I can tell you later, (laughs) brutal. Um, And uh, we had a good time, and uh, one of the things that I made sure to do when I went down for the weekend was, uh, and I think this is actually a sign of getting old, if you're older than me you'll laugh at me saying that, and most of you are older than me, but... um, (laughs) A sign that a sign that you're getting old. When I went on this weekend trip, I took my own special pillow with me. Right? <laughs> See, no one in student ministry does that. Okay? Um, I took my own special pillow because I have got this kind of funky neck issue, and I'm more comfortable if I have the pillow. Right? It's great memory foam. You lie in it, and you just feel like you know the world is at ease and have a good night's sleep. Anyway, driving back from the race through the Bay Bridge Tunnel, I realise. I left my pillow in the hotel. And if you've driven down that part of the world, you know that having dealt with traffic on the way through the Bay Bridge, there's no way you're turning around to, to endure it twice more. And so I, I left my pillow at the Bay Bridge. Devastating. Um, now, my sweet wife um, used the powers of Amazon to order a new one, and she didn't tell me. And it arrived, like I think the next day it arrived. But in that 24-hour period, I fussed and moaned and complained about the lack of said pillow and how miserable I was because of my night's sleep. But I then did something really weird, which was I left the pillow in our kitchen in the box unwrapped for two whole nights. And it was kind of one of those things I kept meaning to get to it and I just didn't. And then by the time I realized I should, I was already in bed and I was too lazy to go back downstairs. And, you know, just I didn't get to it to unwrap that gift. I had it and I didn't use it. Here's what I'm trying to say. I do not want us to leave the indescribable gift of the Christian life unwrapped. I don't want us to think that the gifts of the gospel are all future. I want us to realize that they are here, that they are present, that they're sitting on the kitchen counter, and that we can unwrap them and enjoy them. I do not want us to miss out on anything that Jesus died to give us part of what Jesus died to give us was the fullness of life described in the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm excited to study this and excited to unwrap it and excited to use it day by day. That's the first reason then. Second reason, I'm just looking forward to getting into this, ready to go, is that following the Sermon on the Mount, living by the pages laid out for us here, brings a tremendous blessing. Living the Sermon on the Mount brings a tremendous blessing. Now, of course, let me be really clear about what I'm not saying here. I'm not saying the very crass form of health and wealth, which would say that faithfulness will be rewarded with God's grace, that if you are faithful, God will then, quid pro quo, bless you with success and security and six-pack abs or whatever it is that you deem to be health and wealth. That is not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that gospel living, uh, the gospel paradigm sees that faithfulness is its own blessing. Faithfulness is a blessing in and of itself. Uh, it's the difference between vegetables and ice cream. Hang with me here. Um, <laughs> no child in human... You know, you know, children often say to us, why do I have to eat my vegetables? Okay? And you say... Because they'll help you grow big, and they'll help you grow strong, and you know, they'll help you do all sorts of things. And you totally over-exaggerate the impact of this bit of broccoli okay, on their life. <laughs> you, know, you, you tell them, because it will bring reward in the future. Right? No child in history ever said, why do I have to eat my ice cream? Right? Why did they never say that? Because eating ice cream is its own blessing. Eating ice cream is its own reward. There is no why. It's a blessing in and of itself. And this is the gospel life. That when you live the gospel life, it is its own reward. It is its its own blessing. It's not a a checklist to be performed for future blessing, but it is a blueprint for present blessing here today. And just think of it as you flick over the pages and look at the the headings of each section. Uh, We're going to see a section on anger. Imagine your life free from anger. What would that look like for you if you didn't have those, those outbursts, those moments where you snap? Or if you didn't struggle with that bitterness that just brews and seethes within? you? How, how better would your life be if you did not wrestle with that difficulty? Would that not in and of itself be a blessing to you? Or consider lust that will come up later in the sermon. How much better would you feel and how much better would your experience be if this was a thing that just didn't have ownership of you anymore? If this was a thing that didn't cause a secret shame and, and guilt and fear about your relationships, would that in and of itself not be a blessing to you? Or anxiety, which we reach in chapter 7. How good would it be if you weren't worried and fearful about your future? Can you imagine your life where anger, or lust, or anxiety did not control you? That would, in and of itself, be a blessing, and that's what the gospel life is. It's ice cream, not vegetables. Although David Stevenson said to me on the way out, it's actually both, because the gospel is good for you in the long run too, so it's like a great tasting vegetable ice cream. Okay. <laughs> One of those quotes that makes no sense without context. (laughs) Um, But I hope it made sense in context. I'm excited to get going into this sermon because as we see what Jesus is calling us to, that life itself will be a blessing to us. Number two. Third reason I'm anxious to get going and eager to dig into this text with you uh, this fall is that working our way through this sermon is an aspect of fulfilling the Great Commission. Working our way through this text is an aspect of fulfilling the Great Commission. What do I mean by this? Well, a number of different approaches to this sermon have argued that the ethical teaching that is found here really doesn't have direct relevance for our lives. So, for example, you'll have a dispensational argument which will say the ethical teaching here is really describing a future kingdom of God that hasn't yet arrived And so it's not something that we can live or practice in this day. On the other hand, you'll even have Luther who said that the Sermon on the Mount is really a recapitulation and indeed an an expansion of Old Testament law. And it's not primarily designed to be followed, but primarily designed to show us how we can't keep it and therefore need God's grace. Now we would say, of course, that is one of the things the law does. It shows us that we're in need of a savior. But it is also a rule our guideline for our lives. And this is what I mean when I say that it is a fulfillment, an aspect of fulfilling the Great Commission. Because what does Jesus say? He says, Go therefore, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Jesus commands us to go and teach and obey all that he has commanded us. And what do we find in these pages? We find those things that he taught us to obey. It is the content of that statement uh, uh, written down for us in this text. It's, the, it's like the cliff notes of Jesus' curriculum. It's a summary of all that he longed for us to know. And so as we study it, as we teach ourselves in it, we are in a sense fulfilling that aspect of his great commission. Wrestling with those things that Jesus wanted us to know, Jesus wanted us to live by. Jesus lived by these things. His, his first disciples lived in this way. Great saints through history have lived in this way and, and many thousands of people live this way today. And now he's calling us to come and live in this way. To be transformed by the gospel so that this church might impact our city, our culture, and our world. We're excited about diving into this text because here we find the content of all that he has taught us to live and obey. Just the third reason. Fourth, final reason why I'm eager to get going, excited for this text, is that the Sermon on the Mount connects us to our need of present-day grace. The Sermon on the Mount connects us to our need of of present-day grace. What do I mean by this? As you flick through the sermon, as you spend your ten minutes reading it later today, you'll realize that nothing in the sermon comes particularly easy to us. It's not necessarily intuitive. We find it very hard to live in this way. And if you try and live this way in your own power if you just work up the motivation and pull yourselves up by the bootstraps, you'll find it to be a very frustrating experience because your anger and your lust and your anxiety won't yield to willpower alone. And for many of us, this results in quite a frustrating Christian experience. You, you know you, sh- you you know you should be living in a certain way, but you're not, and you've tried, but you just can't. And so you kind of have this cloud of, yeah, I'm kind of of below par Christian. And the the radical nature of the life that is portrayed for us, the radical lifestyle that is portrayed in the Sermon on the Mount, forces us to seek grace in a new way. Not just past grace for forgiveness, but, but present grace for faithfulness. Think of it like the Lord providing grace like manna. Remember when the Israelites were wandering in that wilderness and day after day the Lord showed up and gave them manna to eat. He provided food for their bodies. But imagine it's Thursday. You're an Israelite and it's Thursday. The fact that the Lord brought manna on Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday isn't filling your belly. You're still hungry. You're grateful for past grace. And you're glad for past grace. And you praise him for past grace. But you need more grace today. And you're hoping it shows up by lunchtime because your belly's beginning to grow. You understand what we're saying here? That that past grace that we have been given is not sufficient to empower present faithfulness today. And so what that's driving us toward, what that's leading us to conclude, is that what we need as a people is, yes, God to have done something for us in the past, but more than that, to be in a relationship with him here today in the present. A relationship with Jesus Christ, who by the power of the Holy Spirit equips us to do everything that he puts before us in a day. This is why he says, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will look after itself. Tomorrow, I'll give you the grace for tomorrow. Today. I'll give you the grace for today. And so what this sermon does is it calls us to see our relationship with Jesus as not just something that has happened in the past, but something that is needed in the present. We rely on Him to enable us to live the kind of lives that are described for us in this text. So there are the reasons for them. why I'm excited to work through this with you first. Jesus died to make this life possible, and I don't want to leave my pillow unwrapped. Following this, ser- this sermon brings great blessing, and I want some vegetable ice cream. Right? <laughs> Thirdly, we've seen that doing this fulfills the Great Commission, and everyone wants to get their hands on the cliff notes. Right? And finally, because it teaches us our need to connect to present-day grace. We all are a people in need of manna. I really hope, I've been been praying that this series will be truly helpful to us this fall. Helpful to my soul as I work through it. Helpful to your souls as we we dig in together. Join me in praying. Uh, Praying likewise. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would lighten enthusiasm for your word in our hearts and in our souls this morning. That we would have a sense of anticipation over our time together in the Sermon on the Mount. That we will see that this life is is a great gift that you have freely given to us. Would you motivate us to not leave it unwrapped? You enable us to see the great blessing that comes from following your blueprint for our lives. Would we enjoy, Lord, fulfilling that great commission you have graciously given us? And would we learn day by day to connect to the grace of the gospel, seeking Christ in relationship with him, that we might be able to live the way that you have called us to live. Father, the gospel is richer, fuller, deeper, than we give it credit for. And I pray you would bless us as we, your people, work through it together this fall. We pray in Jesus' perfect, matchless, and good name. Amen.